the introduction, all right? Just manage your best with that. All right, here we go. So the first image shows you what an individual amino acid looks like. And the first thing that should occur to you is that we have this central alpha carbon and that there are four groups, if you will, that are covalently bound to it. All right? We have the carboxyl group, acidic group. We have the amino group, basic group. We have an R group. And depending on the amino acid, that could be just another hydrogen, or it could be a larger molecule all right, with its own specific charge associated with it. So when you look at this, you see the little minus sign there. You see the plus sign here. It should occur to you that, number one, this is a charged molecule by itself in an, in an aqueous solution. And it's also too charged, hence the word switter ion, which literally means a sort of um, blend or, 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 or two ions together in a single molecule. So it has a dipolar. Another way of looking at it is a dipolar ion. Therefore, this molecule can act both as a base and as an acid in a regular um, uh, aqueous solution. And something else we're going to look at as well is the titration curves of these acids as we increase the base around them. Amino acids are also chiral, and that has a lot to do with the four different groups that are covalently bound to this single carbon center atom. All right. The one exception, of course, is that chiral or that tendency of chirality is lost when you have two groups that are identical. That is, if that R group is yet another hydrogen. All right. But for the majority of amino acids, that is not the case. You have a specific R group here that is not a hydrogen. So what that means is that there are two different stereoisomers that are possible for most amino acids. Even though they have the same groups covalently bound to that central carbon, there are two possible 3D shapes, if you will, or arrangements of those side groups. And it's best illustrated here in this image, which is taken from an earlier, it's a little really tiny, but it refers to an earlier image that you may have seen. Um, it's in, I think, chapter one or chapter two. What you can see here is that, yes, the molecule, if it were standing in front of a mirror, <laughs> for the sake of illustration, has obviously a mirror image. If you rotate that molecule, you can never actually achieve the exact same orientation as what appears in that mirror image. So that's what enantiomer means, to be honest with you. It is an example of this chiral molecule. Optically active just refers to the fact that these molecules, these stereoisomers, will, when hit with light, polarized light, will deflect at a certain plane all right, of light. When you look at these, this to me, I think, is the easiest to understand that what the shape might be in um, a solution. Here you have, a, um, I guess, a, another potential drawing. The heavier arrows indicate those side groups that are facing towards you. 
and the striated ones are those side groups that are facing away from the plane of the paper or the plane of the slide. So that you get an idea of what the 3D shape of this molecule looks like. Right? But really that is the take home message, is that amino acids have these two possible stereoisomers. And that they are not superimposable on their mirror images. Now, in nature, and we'll get to this, it appears in a further slide, but I just want to make this relevant now, is that it's nice to be able to see this from a chemical perspective. But what you want to do is relate it back to biology. I mean, as a biologist, I am. Um, I think of these molecules in a living cell. The amino acids in a living cell are all L conformation, not D conformation. So bear that in mind, all right? Why does this issue matter, right? This distinction that, yes, we have stereoisomers, so what? Well, as it turns out, again, some forms are more biologically relevant than others because the shape of a molecule is inherently important. Right? It's important because it never exists only by itself. It's interacting with a host, hundreds, perhaps thousands of other molecules in a living cell. So its shape, its interaction with other um, proteins, uh, carbohydrates, lipids in the cell is determined by shape. All right? So active sites of enzymes are stereospecific. If an enzyme is going to interact with this molecule, it itself will recognize a specific shape. You all know that traditionally when we think of enzymes, they are like lock and key, right? And the lock requires a specific key. Chemical reactions, if you were to do this in a lab, would produce a mixture, a racemic mixture of the enantiomers. Perhaps 50-50 of the DNL forms of an amino acid, for example. But as I've said, this is not what happens in nature. It's also important to drug companies. There are two examples cited in your textbook that I think are pretty interesting. If you take ibuprofen as an anti-inflammatory, you know, maybe it's been a late night, you have an early class, the, you will discover that the ibuprofen, well, actually you don't discover, but it's curious thing is that the ibuprofen as it is synthesized exists in two stereoisomers. You purchase it as a blend of the two. There's only one of them that actually functions as an anti-inflammatory. The other one allegedly is benign. So when you pop an ibuprofen, 50% of it is working. The other example, it was a notorious example, and, and you're probably too young to know anything about this. Your parents, your grandparents would know about thalidomide. It was a drug that was encouraged for pregnant women early in the 1960s um, uh, to alleviate the side effects of morning sickness. And it actually caused horrible birth mutations. The babies most often didn't die, but they grew up with these abnormalities. All right. So obviously it didn't stay on the market for that long, but it did leave uh, a lasting impact. So again, these are two examples of the biological relevance of a stereoisomer and why its shape is important when you 
pop a drug. There are 20 common amino acids. There are lots of other interesting ones, but for the purpose of this list, there are 20 common. Their names are here. They're three-letter abbreviation. These are the traditional three-letter. These are a little more intuitive. You can guess what arge is. It's going to be arginine. Somewhat less intuitive is the one-letter abbreviation. Dr. Bayfield would like you to know them. He cannot be more obvious here. Um, so, and to be honest with you, as much as I think we, we would hesitate to make you memorize lots of things, I would agree here that it is very valuable for you to know the one-letter symbol of all of the amino acids. And that's largely because it's going to be taken entirely for granted in upper year courses, third, fourth. If you continue in science as a career, everyone writes an amino acid as a single letter code. So it's just handy to know. All right? So please get this in your brain and part it to memory. The other interesting thing about an amino acid is the word acid. Yes, it's a biologically relevant molecule, but as an individual molecule, it behaves like an acid in solution. So that it has a specific titration curve. That is, is that if you increase the base concentration in any, any aqueous solution, you will see that an acid will tend to release a proton at a particular pH. All right? This is something that I am assuming that you'd have learned in previous, like perhaps even in first year biology. So what you see here is the amino acid and the pH at which individual protons are released from certain side groups. So typically, the first proton to be released is released from the carboxyl group all right, in solution. So that is what is associated with PK1, that term right there. PK2, the ionization of the amino group. And you've got to remember that R, that R group, so far has largely been undefined, right? It can be different for the different, well, obviously it is different for the different amino acids. So consider that some of those will also have the ability to release a proton to an aqueous environment. So they too would have a PK associated with them. And we'll take a look at examples of this. There's a statement here on this slide. You should know which have PKRs, that is, a dissociation constant associated with that R group, and whether they become acid basic or neutral. Now, the answer to those questions, that question, is going to show up in the next few slides when we take a look at individual amino acids. That is, how they are, um, what characteristics are common to them that allow us to group them, essentially. So, we're going to take a look at the different R groups of the amino acids. The first group are the nonpolar aliphatic R groups. Aliphatic is conveniently defined down here, is that yes, the R group. Has, could be branched or unbranched. 
It's not going to be an aromatic ring, but it will display some degree of hydrophobicity. All right? So range from mildly hydrophobic for these to actually very hydrophobic for the aromatic group, which is not included in this list. All right? So when you look at these side groups, something should occur to you that, yes, they are largely carbon chains. And intuitively, right off the top, you should be able to say that, yes, these would be more hydrophobic, let's say, than if there was an obvious hydroxyl group attached. Right? Let's think about it. So we can group these as nonpolar aliphatic amino acids. The other little thing that is of interest, actually, is the methionine. Of course, it behaves like an aliphatic because this S here is stuck in between the, these carbon chains, this sulfur group. The question here on the slide, why is sulfur important in the lab? Um, <laughs> what type of isotope is commonly used in for protein labeling? Does anybody know the answer to that? This is not a rhetorical question. 34? 35. I'm sorry? That's okay. What are you thinking? Yeah. Well, there are actually many isotopes of sulfur. It's true. But I think the one that is referred to here is a radioactive isotope. 35S methionine. All right. And so when why is this at all relevant? It's a useful tool, to be honest with you. The isotope is a radioactive isotope, so it is an unstable molecule. If you think of, of sulfur in its ground state, all right, that's 32. Non-radioactive molecule, the element that exists in nature. The 35S has a certain half-life attached with it. That is, is that it's approximately 90 days for about half of the isotope to decay, down, back down to ground state. The reason why this is at all relevant is because it can be used to label something. Labeling allows you to see a molecule, for example. So let's say that if you were to have an Eppendorf tube, and you wanted to make a protein in vitro, what would you need if you wanted to make a protein? Yeah, you're going to have to really holler. What's that? You are going to need a template RNA, right? Because RNA is made into protein. What molecule, larger subcellular molecule, is going to do the job of making that protein, of transcribing that RNA into, not transcribing, translating that messenger RNA into protein? Yes. Yep. A source of ribosomes. And in this case, most often it's store-bought as rabbit reticulocyte lysate, the lysate from uh, rabbit reticulocytes. Well, you're going to need a magnesium ion, keeps the ribosomes tight together, and you're going to require other buffer components. 
this in an Eppendorf tube is going to result in the translation of a protein. If you add, oh yeah, you're going to need amino acids. You're building blocks of protein, aren't you? If you add 35-S-methionine, then one of your building blocks has this label, right? The rest of them don't, that's fine. So that means that the protein that you make, most often they start with methionine, will be radio-labeled here, and maybe here and here, wherever there's going to be a methionine called for within the reading frame of the messenger RNA. So now you have a way of seeing that, yes, indeed, you have made a protein in vitro because you can detect this radioactive energy emitted with a phosphor imager. The other application for a 35S methionine would be, let's say that you wished to test that a noxious poison you're interested in actually kills cells. There's something exciting. So you have, let's say, a time course where you have your cells growing in culture, and you add 35S methionine. And let's say you count let's, the 35S incorporation here along the y-axis. That is, over time, how well do those cells translate proteins? If they are healthy and alive, and the poison doesn't kill them, then presumably they will be translating in that slope. I mean, I'm, I am making this up, but for the sake of illustration, you can see that, yes, there is an incorporation of that 35S-methionine over time in those healthy cells. In the cells that receive the poison, they may be sort of crippled, struggling along and maybe incorporating 35S-methionine at a much slower rate because their overall translation rate is that much poorer. They are crippled cells. Yes? It's an interesting idea. We, we usually, the answer we assume, no. It's going to be a benign uh, effect of having this isotope incorporated. But I understand what you mean, that when you think of any living thing being associated or being exposed to a radioisotope, I mean, the first thing that I think of is, yes, your DNA unwinds. I mean, that's being foolish, but you have an increased potential for mutation of nucleic acids, specifically DNA. But for our sake, we have, let's say, a 24-hour time course, and over that time, you're taking aliquots, right? into a little Eppendorf tube, and you're counting the amount of radioactivity that is associated with the protein that was translated over that time. Okay? I just wanted to go through that with you because I like to be able to say why is a concept relevant to something that you would actually do in a lab. Are there any questions about the importance of or the usefulness of a radio-labeled amino acid? You're okay? All right, moving on. We have aromatic amino acids. And these are obvious when you look at them. They have an aromatic ring, all right? They are phenylalanine, tyrosine, and tryptophan. 
They tend to be the most hydrophobic group of, of amino acids, and therefore, if they are together in any great preponderance in a protein, that protein also tends to be more hydrophobic. These are often buried in the center of a protein. That does make sense, because obviously there would be more in the way of hydrophobic interactions rather than potential for hydrogen bonding and interaction with an aqueous solution. That being said, take a look here. You have an OH group on tyrosine. All right. And if you haven't come across this in classes yet, you certainly will, where you learn about the importance of phosphorylated amino acids as signaling molecules inside of a cell. So a tyrosine has the ability to be phosphorylated and has the ability if it were incorporated in a larger protein, let's say a member of a MAPK signaling pathway, to act as a very important signaling molecule in the cell. Right. So bear that in mind. You can end up with phosphorylation on this OH group. The other thing to bear in mind is that just because an amino acid is buried in the center of a protein, and not immediately apparent or not immediately exposed to the uh, surrounding aqueous um, uh, uh, cell cytosol, if you will, it doesn't mean it just sits there doing nothing. All right? So for example, it still has the ability to, because of this ring structure, actually interact with nucleic acids, right? Because you know nucleic acids have ring structures. So by pi interaction stacking, you can get, for example, the protein that I happen to work on is a glycosidase. It's an enzyme that picks purines off of RNA. So we have a protein. And if you look at the enzyme, the active site of my favorite protein, I've got two aromatic amino acids just right there in the active site that sandwich that incoming purine and allow for the hydrolysis of that purine because that purine is being held, quote unquote, in space with those two aromatic amino acids. All right? So aromatic amino acids, yes, hydrophobic generally, but also important. Not, they, they can have, be important in the enzymology and, and active jobs of, that a protein does. All right, where are we? Next group, polar uncharged R groups. This sounds like a little bit of a weird category, polar yet uncharged, you know? And really that relates to the fact that yes, these amino acids could potentially release a proton to the environment, that is, could potentially become ionized, but honestly, at any physiological pH, you know, anywhere between four and eight, they're definitely not going to do that. So for any biologically, uh, uh, when you think of biological application of these amino acids, they remain non-ionized at neutral pH. All right, so that's why we're referring to them as uncharged R groups. And then finally, those two groups that do become ionized 
at what we would refer to as a neutral pH, a pH of 7. We have positively charged R groups, and we have negatively charged R groups. These clearly are both hydrophilic groups of amino acids. You will find them most often decorating the outside, if you will, outer edge of a protein, a protein, those amino acids that interact with the cell cytosol. All right. This slide refers to what we first talked about when, well, actually, I just briefly mentioned, is a titration curve. And I'll, I'll show you an example of this in a minute. It shows up soon. But just to reiterate, when you have an amino acid in solution, and at a and you, let's say at pH 0, all right, it's going to be completely protonated. And then as you increase that pH through the addition of base, you are going to discover that at certain pHs, you are going to ionize this amino acid. That is, you're going to cause the release of a proton into the solution. So pK1 refers to that constant at which the carboxyl group is ionized. And pK2 refers to that constant at which the amino group becomes ionized. And bear in mind, too, is that if the amino acid has an R group, and as they do, <laughs> uh, the ionization, some of those amino acids can be ionized at their R group. All right? When you look back at that original table we looked at, there was constants associated dissociation constants associated with R groups for particular amino acids. We have a couple of special amino acids. One of them is cysteine. Yes, it has the ability to become protonated, but in that case, it is found, biologically, it is found as a disulfide, or what I mean by that is di-cysteine molecule. The sulfides will form a disulfide bond here, thereby linking these two amino acids. So that you do not find a protonated cysteine that is not associated with some other molecule. And most often that is to create a disulfide bond between two cysteines. This is important because the disulfide bond is relevant when you think about the 3D shape of a protein. They are one of the characteristics of a protein that you need to consider when designing, well not designing, when calculating what the 3D shape of a protein would look like. Histidine. Histidine is special because its R group is an imidazole ring. So structurally, what that looks like is this ring right here. It is a five-membered ring that contains carbon. And of the five atoms here, we have two nitrogens. The two nitrogens are never sitting side by side. They are never directly linked covalently. All right. So here we have this imidazole ring. 
it too can be ionized at near physiological pH. So here is what I mean by that titration curve, all right? Whenever you try to interpret any data, and I stress this for my own course because we do a lot of data interpretation, do not be caught off guard. Oh my God, you have data, how am I going to interpret that? Just read the axes, all right? Calm down, read the x-axis, read the y-axis. That will tell you what the image is trying to present, all right? So what you see on your x-axis is hydroxyl equivalence at increasing amount on the, the x-axis. So you are increasing the basic component in this aqueous solution. On the y-axis as a result is, of course, you are changing the pH when you do that. Now, this is not just an empty aqueous solution. It has an, am an amino acid solubilized in it. And that, as we know, the amino acid has certain charged groups. They are going to react to being placed in this increasing basic solution. So PK1, the pH at which that first proton is released from that carboxyl group. So if this is our starting molecule at a very low pH, completely protonated, the first thing to occur at increasing pH will be the release of this proton, right, at pK1. We have pKr, the side group, you'll notice, releases a proton. And then finally, we have the release of that amino proton, right? at, at a pK of pK2 of 9.17. PI refers to a molecule that no longer has a net charge in solution at that particular pH. Right? That doesn't mean that when you see its molecules, portions of side groups may have a charge, but when you add those charges together, the amino acid is no longer charged all right, at that pH. So what we've talked about so far are the different amino acids. We have grouped them into categories, largely based on the characteristics of their R groups. Yes. The question is, how would you know which proton gets removed in what order? And if you were to do these experiments today, the easiest way to do that is by mass spec, to be honest with you. And so you would, mass spec is going to break apart the molecule and based on a charge to fraction of molecule size, you will get a certain reading from the mass spec that will tell you that, yes, indeed, that proton is missing from this particular subgroup of the molecule. Yeah. Are there any other questions? Yep. Yep. 
Can I go back a slide? Uh, yep. Oh, the fact that you can, depending on the pH. Okay, so at physiological pH, histidines will be found in both forms. So that means that there will be variability with having maintained that proton or having released that proton. So the two forms are with and without the proton. All right. And that depends not only on the, yes, it, it depends literally on the pH. But you have to bear in mind, too, that in a physiological condition, that amino acid is not going to be, or very rarely ever, by itself. That is, it's going to be within a chain of amino acids to make a proton, a pr protein, and if not, it's going to be associated with some other molecule. And that will also influence to what degree that single amino acid is protonated. Yeah. Are we good? Yes. Very, it's a good question. What does the in vivo mean? In vivo means inside of a living cell. Yeah. So depending on what other molecules are associating with that individual amino acid can determine how easily it becomes protonated. That's something to think about. It's not just about the literal pH of a solution. Are there other questions? Yep. Okay, and I'm going to try. I'm not sure I understand. So you're asking, apart from mass spec, is there a chemical means of knowing this? Do you know what? Release of electrons? There probably is. But off the top of my head, I don't know the answer to that. Because presumably, these were largely determined before mass spec became so popular and common. Right? But I mean, for me, this is how I would do the experiment. Are there other questions? No? Yeah. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Can you holler, please? I can't, the question is, to what degree do you need to memorize the order of release of protons from individual amino acids? That's your question? Okay, so I think, and I'm weighing heavily on the think because this is not my course, but I think that the important thing here is that you understand that at a very low pH, your amino acid is completely protonated. And that in, at increasing concentrations of base, you will end up with release of a hydrogen. And that that occurs first at the carboxyl. And that it is associated with that pK1 constant of dissociation. The actual literal memorization of that sequence, you will need to ask Dr. Bayfield. I am, to me, those are the important, sorry, those are the important concepts.
Are there any other questions? We're good. All right. Okay, so that is the end of our brief discussion <laughs> yeah, of the different categories or groupings of amino acids largely based on their characteristic R groups. Most of the time, amino acids are linked together as proteins. And I'm certain that you understand by now what a peptide bond is. But it's just useful as a reminder here. You have a carboxyl group and an amino group. Condensation, i.e. the release of an entire water molecule, results in the covalent bond between this carboxyl group and the amino group. And you can clearly see, looking at this little pink hazed area, that yes, you're missing water. Right? So that chemically is how you make a peptide bond. Yes? Histidine, the question is, why is histidine positive and basic amino acid? Because of its tendency to lose a proton very readily from its R group, so that at a physiological pH, it does carry that positive charge. What's that? You're right about that. The proton, the question is, isn't the donation of a proton an acidic property? The interesting thing really, I think, comes from the imidazole ring, is that you end up with a non-equally shared charge at that ring. Typically, when you see molecules that have a nitrogen and a double bond, um, they will have a tendency to be more positively charged. And I wish I could give you more detail than that. Um, let me think. I'm trying to think of some relevant example, even. The behavior of histidine becomes important when you histidine tag a protein. So for example, if you were to tag a protein with six histidine residues, you would be relying on its interaction with imidazole to isolate that protein. And again, that is a charge-charge reaction. And you are again assuming at that point that the histidine is going to be more positively charged, and that's how it is separated. Yeah. Are there other questions? Um, we're going to, yes, the answer off the top of my head is yes, and we're going to see an example of that in a minute. <clears throat> Are there other questions? All right. So we have a peptide bond forming here, and you can see that, yes, it causes the release of a water molecule from the individual amino acids. The molecule in charge of making this peptide bond is, of course, the ribosome. It's an enzyme. The reaction is catalyzed by RNA, as a matter of fact, because the ribosome, be ribosome behaves like a ribozyme. All right. 
This is something that isn't mentioned literally here, but again, it's nice to know how this works really in nature. This is a list of just some common nomenclature. If you see the word dipeptide, it means two amino acids. Tripeptide, three of them. This is really very intuitive, to be honest with you. Anything larger than, let's say, 100 amino acids strung together, we call a protein. So the distinction between polypeptide and protein. <clears throat> Words, obviously, are used interchangeably. But I think that the reason that this slide exists here is that these are words that you are going to see when you read not just your textbook, but when you read the literature. They are just common words that we use to describe the different proteins. We tend to say polypeptides for smaller proteins and the word protein for anything larger than 100 amino acids, generally speaking. Amino acids, you're also, going to hurt, be, ah, you're also going to see described as residues. And that's really, it's a vague older word in my opinion. Simply, initially when, amino, when proteins were being studied, they were hydrolyzed into their individual amino acids. And the individual amino acids studied. So we have this concept of taking a larger protein and breaking it down into its pieces, i.e. its residues. So that's where pieces became residues, that is, the individual amino acids. Proteins are also written from their N to C terminus. This is, again, by convention, the N terminus being the end that was transcribed from the 5 prime end of the messenger RNA. So mRNA is never drawn as a straight line. You have a 5. Sorry. I have a really um, sore shoulder, so I have a hard time lifting my, never mind. So that is the messenger RNA, uh, actually. <laughs> a cap structure, a poly A tail. I mean, we should at least respect. So this messenger RNA will have an open reading frame associated with it. Most often starting at a methionine, ending at a stop codon. So it is this portion that is translated into a protein. That is it's going to be its N terminus. That is its C terminus. OK? Yes? Do you know what the question is? At exactly 100, is an amino, a, a string of amino acids described as a protein or a polypeptide? And I think, honestly, that's entirely arbitrary. These are words that are just in common usage. But it's good to know them, because when you read the literature, if you read the word polypeptide, then off the top of your head you should say, all right, this is going to be a small protein. That's really the important distinction. I'm drawing this for you just so that you can see what I mean when we say that the N terminus is here, the C terminus is here. How is that relevant to the starting molecule, the messenger RNA, that was translated to make this protein? And of course, you can see here in red the side groups. And the thing that when you look at that is that obviously these side groups, as we know now, will have their own charges and own characteristics, hydrophobicity associated with them. 
so that in the end, an entire protein is largely determined by obviously its individual components, the individual amino acids, to give you overall a protein that is going to be hydrophobic and buried, let's say, in a lipid bilayer versus a protein that will be a signaling molecule through the cytoplasm of a cell. Polypeptides are polyprotic. And that really just means that obviously because they all come with their own R groups, they will have many ionizable groups that affect the overall ch net charge, in this case, of a protein. So we have this question, how do you calculate the PI for this tetrapeptide? It becomes far more tricky, is the real answer to that. Because you can do that for each individual amino acid, yes, and you could add up those charges. But again, this protein is not likely to be existing on its own. It's going to be interacting with other molecules, i.e. that your question about what is in vivo relates to how is that protein going to behave in a living cell? And that, I think, goes beyond just these individual charges. But you can see that this is a hydroxyl group that has lost its proton. This is an amine group, amino group. So how does this tripeptide look at pH 0? The answer would be that it would be completely protonated at pH 0. But again, that's not how it's going to look at pH 7. This next slide relates to your question about, where, where are you? I've lost you. Yeah, you. Okay. <laughs> that question about partial bond character. All right. <clears throat> Due to resonance with the carbonyl carbon. That is, you can have a partial establishment of a double bond here. All right. So there is sort of a displacement of electrons, if you will. You are not changing the molecule itself that, well, you are not changing its makeup. It is still made up of the same atoms. However, because of this ability to form a partial double bond here, you have a molecule that will tend to rotate less, right? You all know that if you have a carbon-carbon bond with a single bond connecting the two carbons, there allows for some degree of rotation between the two groups connected, if you will, the two atoms. If you introduce a double bond, you introduce a stability to the molecule, i.e. stability meaning less rotation. So in actual fact, amino acids linked in a protein tend not to rotate that much simply because they have this partial double bond established. All right. Virtually all peptide bonds occur in the trans configuration, i.e., the side group here across from the side group here rather than in cis, and that has a fair to degree to do with steric hindrance. All right. <clears throat> you will read here. This business of being in trans is, there is an exception that is noted in an image that comes in the next chapter, all right? 
Currently, we're in chapter three. This is introducing amino acids, proteins, and I think the next lecture that you will have will be on protein structure. Right? So you get to the higher level of organization of this molecule. Okay, I've already gone through that material. Let's get to the exception, because it's kind of interesting. Okay, thank you. The exception exists with the amino acid proline. All right? And you can see here, uh, it's okay. You can see here that isomerization, i.e., that rotation to create two different shapes, is actually more common with proline peptide bonds, or peptide bonds that include the amino acid proline in the protein simply because you don't have that double bond character established to the same degree. So now what you have is most of the time an amino, a string of amino acids that also contains a proline in that chain of amino acids will tend to be in the trans configuration, yes, but it can also to some degree or to some percentage of the time, more accurately, you have it, the molecule in cis, right, illustrated right here. That is that carboxyl group very close to that um, ring structure, the imidazole um, uh, ring structure. Actually, no, proline, no. So we have prolines are typically in trans configuration. They can adopt cis. And why this is at all biologically relevant is because they tend to be the amino acids involved in turns of beta sheets. You all know that when you consider the 3D or tertiary structure of an amino acid, you have, um, or secondary structure even, to be honest with you, is you have alpha helices, you have beta sheets. How those beta sheets are aligned, they tend to be anti-parallel sheets close together, requires the turning of the molecule. And that turn is most often facilitated by this proline molecule, proline amino acid at the turn at the end of a beta sheet. The other thing to bear in mind is that proline isomers catalyze the transition. Enzymes that catalyze the transition are referred to as proline isomerases. It's just something to be aware of that, yes, proline tends to form more, more often than other amino acids this um, cis conformation rather than trans. The other thing to know about proteins is that they are single, can be single polypeptide chains, i.e. monomeric two chains, oligomeric multiple chains, via non-covalent interactions, uh, that is electronegative interactions are very common among proteins. They can form larger groups together. They are, can easily have another chemical moiety covalently bound to them. That is, you can have what's called a prosthetic group. They could be sugars, they could be lipids. You could have a lipoprotein. 
particularly for those that are also found in membranes. Can be classified as water soluble, globular is the word that is usually de uh, described proteins that are soluble in an aqueous medium. Water insoluble, obviously not all proteins are soluble. There are structural proteins like collagen and keratin that you don't want to have completely soluble in aqueous. All right then, so now I have run out of slides. Um, but I don't, what I would like, we still have a few minutes. I won't keep you here forever, I promise. But really, I think something that is important that should occur to you now is that you have, if you refer back to that original slide, and go back to the take home, really, who knew? The take-home message of what we truly wanted to learn is that proteins are characterized by their size, their shape, their charge. The first thing that you would want to do as a biochemist is to be able to study your protein of interest. Most of the times you are dealing with a huge mix of proteins. You lyse a living cell and you have thousands of different proteins. So based on these characters, how would you isolate your desired protein for individual study? Just off the top of your head. Could you rely on any of these characteristics to get you there? Yes. Say that again. The last two, the hydrophobicity and the chemical reactivity, absolutely you could. If you knew that your protein was an enzyme, you could perhaps separate it out from a mix given the individual protein's reagent. Let's say bound to a bead that would allow you to separate out your protein from a mix of others. Hydrophobicity, certainly, yes. That would also relate to the overall charge of your protein. The reason why I'm bringing this up is that it is going to show up any minute in the next course you're going to take. So I just want to be able to take a minute to actually link this to something that A, you will end up needing to know, and B, has some relevance to research. You, if you had, let's say, an ion exchange column of positively charged beads, all the way down. And you tossed in your cell lysis. You would have many different proteins of many different charges in this mix. You then apply them to this column. What's going to happen to the more negatively charged proteins? The more negatively charged, they're going to stick by electronegative interactions. The more positively charged ones are going to fall out the bottom. Right? So now you have a very handy and practical application in order to take this mess and separate it out based on charge. All right, so fine. So now you start collecting fractions. And fraction number one in your handy Eppendorf tube collects all of these positive charged ones. Marvelous.
What are you going to do about the ones that are stuck on the column? Why are they stuck? Electronegative interactions between positive and negative. How are you going to disrupt that? Yeah, use of charge. So what you could do most often, the cheapest, easiest way if you're working in a lab, is to add a salt. Now a salt in aqueous solution is also going to have a plus and minus charge associated with it. But if you add a small concentration of salt, that will be enough to disrupt the interaction between some of those negatively charged molecules. So what comes out in Eppendorf number two, fraction number two if you do this, at a low concentration of salt, you're going to end up with those proteins that are just not so negative, more neutral or more just barely negative. So I'm going to say barely negative for the lack of a good word. Then if you dump in a much higher concentration of salt, you can see the pattern here. You're going to end up with your most negatively charged proteins. So now you have a way of not only separating out the positives, but also making a gradient of those negatives for most negatively charged proteins. All right? And that is just an example of ion exchange chromatography. It's a pretty simple and old school technique. These are store-bought beads. You don't need to make them yourself. You pack a column, you add your lysate, and you have a way of separating out proteins according to their charge. All right? I just wanted to give you a single example of how what knowing an amino acid's charge is important. Thank you for your attention. We're done.